All right. Sit back, relax. It's time for another Laneway Talks. How are you, Cletus? I'm doing great, Vincent. Doing very, very well. I'm uh, currently lodged just outside of Sydney in the middle of a uh, a little weekend gig run and uh, enjoying uh, some very, very uh, rare downtime. Well, I'd like to welcome you to Laneway Music and, uh, you know, we're here for the artist, uh, by artists. And so um, let's talk a little bit about your history and just get a, you know, where Cletus has come from and where he's been and where he's going. Um, let's go back to the start. Uh, you know, when did you, when did you get into music? When did you pick up a guitar? Um, I guess it was probably in my DNA because um, my father and his family all played. Uh, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest in the U.S., um, Portland, Oregon. We uh, moved down to Eugene when I finished school. But my earliest memories are going to all of the family reunions that uh, they used to have. They had a fairly large family scattered over. Most of these are in the Midwest or in the South and someone's farm or something like that. And there'd always be drums and amps and guitars and fiddles and things, and everyone played. So it was just something I grew up around. Yeah, quite natural and, uh, for you. Yeah, I, I gravitated toward it without any real plan, but uh, I think I realized at one point that this is really what I'd like to do more than anything else. So uh, I uh, decided I needed to work out how this was going. I was going to make a living out of this. Well, tell me, when did you when did you form your first um, band or, uh, you know, or... Yeah, I suppose first band because as a young yeah. person, you don't usually say I, I um, was going to put out a solo project. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was all about bands back then. And uh, I, I, for my earliest memories of uh, going probably going back to elementary school, we would always have some sort of a of a thing where a couple of us would get together in the music department and play. Um, by the time I hit probably fourteen or so, we were playing at dances at parties and we got a lot of school dances and things like that. Um, and uh, it just sort of grew throughout high school, but um, it was probably um, probably just had left high school and uh, I heard that there was a band in town needing another player. And at mm. that point, I actually started out playing keyboards. That was my kind of my primary instrument. Oh, okay. But I, uh, I learned drums, I learned guitar, um, mm. so I, I learned as much as I could. I played a bit of everything. And we had, you know, mandolins and stuff in the house. I played anything I could get my hands on. But yeah. I realized, we, you know, at that point, there were, of course, there were a zillion guitar players around and very few bass players and keyboard players. So I started doing that because I got more, more gigs that way. So I joined this band, and uh, over the years, we evolved and got professional management. <clears throat> In fact, our former manager has been a uh, longtime manager of Motley Crue, uh, Alan Kovac. He, uh, well, uh, well tell me, Cletus, during that period, you say over the years, that's weird, you know, whatever, but from when you started that band and going over the years, what were you doing? You had a day job, and you're doing that at night? Mm -hmm. No, well, the only, I didn't have any day jobs. So I was kind of fortunate that everything I did was music related. My, my first day job I had when I was still in high school yeah. was working at a sound and light company. And uh, we did staging and scaffolding and support for all the touring concert acts. And uh, I think the first major show I worked was The Grateful Dead at Austin City in Eugene, Oregon when I was about 16 or 17. And yeah. that's where I met the legendary Sam Cutler, former Rolling Stones. And grateful to the tour manager who was here in Australia, and we're, we're friends again, which is really nice to come wow. full circle. But yeah, I was probably sixteen or seventeen, and 
I was doing that. And then um, we were so hungry as a band, we played everywhere. We played all over the Pacific Northwest. We stuck in Canada. We didn't have visas. We managed to do it anyway. And uh, we made enough money from um, uh, all of these gigs and parties and dances and little clubs we were playing that uh, we managed to kind of eke out a bit of a living. So, well, I mean, of um, course, this is. Of course, it's America, and you know, with a population, well, I'd say mm. back then it would have been at least what two hundred and fifty million. Um, About that, yeah. And you know, you, you look at here; we've only just hit twenty-five million, I think. Um, there is no comparison, and when you say we just kept touring, well, it's all achievable over there. I mean, there is many an artist over there that uh, tour and make a good living who we will never ever hear of over here. Correct. Absolutely. It's, uh, and it's one of the things I think that's been a blessing for a lot of artists like myself, I suppose. You know, I mean, back in the day, they would have said, well, if you haven't got a major record deal, then you're finished. Go find something else to do. But um, us independent artists working with people like Laneway and uh, using social media and using the Internet to help promote, we, we can kind of you know, scratch out a living. So it's something I would have never dreamt of was starting with my early bands back then. Yeah. So well, what happened? So so when when's your first release? Uh, we first got uh, once we got our our, our, our proper um, professional management company. Uh, they started uh, searching for record deal, and that was kind of this would have been nineteen seventy nine. So. Yeah. Okay. Just before the big crash, but a lot of people were still getting signed. There's a lot of money around, uh, but things are changing. We got signed to uh, Capricorn Records, and then three months later, they filed bankruptcy. And that was very, fam- very famous uh, label. Yes, yeah, the Almond Brothers and all that. Yeah, so we we had all of these little things that were happening and didn't quite. Um, I've lost over the years, but for many years I hung on to a rejection letter that was handwritten by Clive Davis when he was at Arista before yeah, yeah. he went on, and that was that was a bit that was a bit of a, a little keepsake for me. Yeah, um, we, we we changed names a lot. Here's, here's a fun story. Um, we uh, called ourselves the News, and uh, when things started to happen, we actually had a record signed by a New York record company as News. And then as we were preparing to get into our first album, yeah. uh, we, we found out that Huey Craig from San Francisco, from the band Clover, had started the new band, and they were calling it Huey Lewis the News. <laughs> well, the lawyers all went to town over who had the rights first, which we did, and everything else. And it got resolved with them offering us uh, uh, a sum of money to yeah. uh, relinquish the name, which we thought it was something like 10 grand or whatever. I only found out about 10 years ago it was actually substantially more than that and our management company just kept it. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Nothing's changed. Yeah, but we did a show together as the news and the news became good friends. I'm still good friends with Chris Hayes, the guitarist. We still yeah. chat and everything. But uh, we ended up calling the band, changing the name of the band to Sneakers and that album came out in 1980. Um, we were on we had the Billboard star pick of the week on Billboard magazine. Yeah. Um, we went out and started touring and opening shows for all of our heroes, which was just, I uh, was what, I think I just turned 21. So here we are opening for Tom Petty, for Elvis Costello, uh, for um, uh, gosh, uh, Nick Lowe. He's one of the weirdest gigs we ever did. We had a double headline in 
I think it was Dallas, Texas, mm. with Wild Cherry. Oh, <laughs> really? Play that funky music. <laughs> yeah. And we we were a straight pop band. We were like, we were probably, if you had to compare us, we were very similar to bands like The Knack and The Romantics. You know, we, we were a power pop band, really. And they put us with Wild Cherry, <laughs> where <laughs> in this weird room where they headlined one night, and then the next night we swapped, and then we headlined, and it was real strange. But, but it was just great playing with our heroes and getting to know everybody. And uh, one of the, uh, just another story that uh, people keep telling me I've got to write a book one day for stories like this. And um, we played the Whiskey A Go-Go, in Hollywood, legendary whiskey. Yeah, uh, we were opening for a band called the Orchids, and that was a spin-off band from the Runaways, the old girl band. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, it was Sandy West, I think, the drummer, and uh, the side project thing. And I remember Joan Jett being there, and there's a lot of backstory to this. But basically, I got on Joan's bad side somehow. Uh, fast forward a couple of years, I love rock and roll. The number one song in the USA. Yeah. Joan Jett and the Blackhearts are touring. They're yeah. playing my hometown, Eugene, Oregon. Yeah. They're playing Grand Illusions, the biggest venue, and I'm opening the show. So <laughs> we get the sound check. Joan's a little frosty toward me, whatever. We do our set. And afterward, police come in. And I don't mean the band, the police, because we'd opened for them about a month before. Um, cops came in because some guy had called in a phony bomb threat. He had gotten pissed off because he couldn't get his underage girlfriend in with her fake ID or something. Yeah. <laughs> he did something like that. So the cops come in, empty the place out. By the time they give the all clear, a lot of people had gone home. As you know, of course, you wouldn't really yeah. want to take the risk. So we went from 800 people to about 250, 300. Yeah. And I'm walking down the hall <clears throat> back to the green room and Joan and the band are coming out to go out and play for a third of the crowd they thought they were going to. Yeah. Now, I know this will come as a surprise because you've known me for a long time, 30 years or so. Yeah. Um, I used to be a bit of a smart act. You know, like, <laughs> I know it's a big shock. <laughs> so I walk past Joan and I go, hey, nice crowd. <laughs> she punches me square in the nose. Oh, fair dinkum. Oh, that's fantastic. So, I love it. Yeah. So, yeah, I got punched up by Joan Jett once. So I was just talking about it recently during uh, the COVID lockdown. I was... Um, uh, exchanging some memories with Ricky Bird, her longtime guitarist, yeah. still in New York. And I said, Do you remember what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So, from yeah. the Sneakers, okay. So, the Sneakers put out a record. Um, uh, it obviously doesn't set the world on fire because otherwise we would have seen another Sneakers record, correct? Yeah, we did uh, We did two albums. By the time the second one was ready, we were going to drop by the label. Uh, we had, had kind of fallen out with the management company a little bit. They had moved to Los Angeles, and they had just picked up a young um, back guy. He used to be uh, Lionel Richie's backing singer by the name of Richard Marks, and of course, they had a huge success with him. Yeah. Um, and um, the band were kind of moving in different directions. The usual thing that happens, it almost literally was the old cliche of creative differences. Did the, did uh, the record oh, actually it, get it, released? It got released. The first album did okay. We did, uh, I can't remember what the exact sales figures were. They were about 200,000. Oh, that's, I know that over here, you would have been a, a sensation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, back then, it was 500,000 for gold, uh, yeah. a million for platinum. And yeah. they, um, it, it was it was reasonably good for this. I think if we had, we'd been able to stay on track and do a couple of albums, we could have maybe grown. But it just wasn't in the cards. So I left the band and I... Uh, Moved to Los Angeles, started uh, trying to put something together on a, on a solo thing. Yeah. 
And uh, over the years, over then, we're talking like in the early 80s, so yeah. um, <clears throat> nothing really kind of took hold. Well, how uh, long there. did you stay and, in L.A. for? Well, I was bouncing back from L.A. to Oregon because I could always get work in Oregon gigging or, or working in a studio or whatever and yeah. put my money aside. Then i come back to L.A. and basically starve while I was running yeah. around, <laughs> shopping tapes and everything, you know, and trying to do, you know, doing demos and that kind of thing. I worked part-time at a recording studio in Eugene, which was really handy. I could do my own demos. Yeah. Uh, but no, nothing really um, took hold. So um, at one point, I just sort of hit the wall. This is like early 86. Uh, my then girlfriend uh, and her band, we were on tour together. Uh, we weren't getting along. Things just sort of hit there. And uh, I called up my elder sister. Now, she's actually my half-sister for my dad's first marriage. Yeah. She was born and raised in Brisbane. Yeah. My dad was out here after World War II. Oh, okay. So I said, look, I've, I've, I've really need a break. I want to come out and hang with you guys for a year or so. So I managed to get my visa and all set up through the family. Yeah. And I turned up in Australia in 1986. And the first guy I meet, of course, is Peter Wells. from He <laughs> was living like two blocks away from me. Oh, really? In, que- in Queensland? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were, we were all in Coolangatta at that time, yeah. Oh, Coolangatta. Wow. Very, very yeah. rich in music history and hanging yeah, out yeah, at the corner pub. Used to go there all the time myself. Uh, a lot of, a uh, lot of, yeah. I started the jam session at the uh, open mic thing at at the what, what's now called the Coolangatta Sands. It was called the Port of Call back there, and it's still going here. Some for, nearly forty years later, or so wow. proud of that. But Pete was uh, he had the Lucy DeSoto band thing going with his uh, his songwriting partner and yeah. singer, and uh, I ended up uh, slotting in on bass for a lot of those gigs, and that kind of brought me into the Aussie um, rock and roll scene. Oh wow! So. Um, you've met one of the uh, the famous slide players and bass players in Australian, more in the in the rock genre, of course. Um, so, what happens? You do a bit of gigging there with Pete Wells. What do you decide to yeah. do? Where's your head at? What are you going to do musically? I played with them for about a year or so, but I was still really wanting to do something of my own. I didn't think I'd be doing it in Australia, but I, I still had all these demos and things of. Uh, that I had been shopping around in Los Angeles. And uh, Pete, at that point, they were signed to uh, a record label owned by uh, a giant in the industry that we all know, Sebastian Chase. Yeah. Um, had the Chase Records deal, which at that point was promoted and distributed through CBS before mm. they became Sony. Mm. And um, Pete put in a call on my behalf and said, yes, I was to meet with you. I flew down to Sydney. Uh, gave him my demos and all, and he basically offered me a solo deal. Fantastic. So I moved to Sydney, and was just putting all that together and putting the band together. And So uh, what, record, what record was that? That, you- <laughs> that was called Colorblind, and that, um, that's um, uh, probably the first one that will pop up in my back catalog if people are looking online. I'm look- well, I'm looking uh, online now, and so that's Colorblind, is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let me but, just uh, bring for everybody. I want to. Ah, yes, there it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. EP. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. It was a six track. Well, they called it a mini album because it was yeah. like a six track thing. So. Okay. Uh, but we had. Uh, I had my my band playing on it. Pete. Uh, Pete Wells played on it. Also, Mick Cox, the other uh, guitar player from Roach I befriended Mick when I got to Sydney, and he was gracious enough to play on it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we we were out trying to tour and get things rolling and. Uh, at that point, unbeknownst to us, Sav Chase was working out a deal 
with Chris Murphy and Gary Grant, who were setting up a new record label that became Ruart, which is yeah. a spin-off thing from what they were doing with Very the NXS and all that. Yeah. So uh, basically, yeah, the record, uh, my album kind of died. Uh, the Lucy DeSoto one, I know there was uh, a Marty Wilson Piper solo thing from the church. Oh, <laughs> Things yes. just sort of, you know, slipped through the cracks around then. Um, and uh, I was kind of back to square one at that point. So and what do you do? Around, do you pack up and move or what do you do? I sort of did, yeah. I, I packed up and jumped back and went back to L.A. for about a year. <laughs> oh, really? And I took all, I, I almost did the reverse of what I did before. I thought, okay, I've got a, some pretty decent tracks on this album. Let me go see what I can do. Mm. Um, so I go back to uh, Los Angeles and I'm kind of the same thing. I'm doing nothing. I'm, I'm working part time in a, a video distribution company to pay my, my room while I'm running around trying to, you know, uh, sw- sell these tapes around and trying yeah. to get something happening. I get a phone call from a guy named Chris Turner, who, of course, everyone in Laneway fans will know as a Laneway artist. Yeah. Chris had played with Pete in Buffalo. Um, he briefly played in Rose Tattoo as well, and he played with quite a lot of other well-known people in Australia. And I had been friends with Chris before I'd left. I, uh, I did a couple of dates with him, and he called me in L.A. and said, uh, what are you doing? And uh, I told him, well, kind of not much, but just going in circles. And he said, well, I'm putting a tour together, and we've got Mark Evans from ACDC on base, and we've got some other people. Um, any chance of you coming back over? And so I jumped on the plane and came back to Sydney and became part of Chris's band for a few years. Oh, wow. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't know that, that that's, uh, that's what had happened. Yeah, that's all that went. Yeah, Chris and I, we, we, we definitely said we got to sit down and do a, like a, one of those little YouTube shorts or something about how we met because um, we'd gotten in touch through Pete. Uh, Chris said, come over, I'm working on my new album. And it was at this uh, place called Earth Media that was a studio in Milton Point, Sydney on the harbor, owned by Alan Lancaster from oh. Status Quo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I go over, I meet Chris, I meet Alan, the word on tracks. And then John Brewster comes to the door, and Alan and John were doing the um, Party Boys thing. Oh, yeah. And John had come in with the news that their new single that was about to come out the following week a cover of the old tune, He's Gonna Step On You Again. Yeah. Uh, John came with the news that this band in Melbourne had beaten them the punch and they were doing a, a dance version. And that band, of course, was the Shantuzis. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it so clearly because I was at Mushroom and release, when it was released. Uh, yes, you would have been right in the middle of it, yeah. And, of course, all things going full circle here years later, what, what we'll come up to is when I would have been Big Whiskey, we had Yvonne Bibro from the Shantuzis. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. But, yeah, that was my first meeting with Chris. So, uh, yeah, so I played with uh, Chris on and off for quite a few, and we still do. We, we've got all these other projects and all, but that was kind of the career arc that um, get, let me going for a while. Well, then, you, then get to, um, you get to Tales of Ordinary Madness, 91. <laughs> right. Well, around then, I wanted to do an album. I didn't have the money to go into a studio. I had no record deal, yeah. uh, but I had a four-track quarter. And I was working in a music shop so I could blow mics and stuff. So I basically recorded an acoustic album at home. And uh, I wanted, uh, I figured out a hybrid way to do this, which uh, I thought was clever. I put the machine down, I booked an afternoon uh, at Kevin Jacobson Studios in yeah. Glee. Yeah. And I went in with the machine and we dropped it all onto tape and we mixed it. And it only cost me a couple hundred bucks for the afternoon <laughs> to get a professional sounding mix <laughs> on my homemade album. That's and fantastic. I thought, I thought, I, I want to do something with this. And at that point, well, then and now, really, 
Melbourne has a better live music scene, especially for small acoustic solo acts. Yeah. And Pete and Lucy had just moved down to Melbourne. So, uh, and I knew people down there as well, people mm. who were playing. So I moved down to Melbourne. And, mm. uh, and then I just started playing the uh, local circuit around there behind that album. Well, you got um, you got Wooden Nails, which is 92. So the very next year, you've put another album out. Yeah, I'd made enough money from playing. It was a really good time back then because I mean, I could gig seven days a week if I wanted. I did five or six because I didn't want to burn myself out. But I was making a minimum of $100 a gig playing solo. And my rent then was only $80 a week. Yeah. So <laughs> between that and my APRA uh, uh, performance rights, yeah, uh, income from all the work. I managed to have a budget in '92 to go into a studio in South Melbourne mm. and um, record another album, but this time a full band album. Yeah, I mean, so there's some pretty had, classic songs on that record. Yeah, it was. Uh, I thought it was a good showcase of what I was doing at the time. Uh, remember, early '90s was when the whole country crossover thing was doing really well. We had Garth Brooks and Shania Twain and. Um, Billy Ray Cyrus and a lot of basically there, there was a real line blurring between what used to be a way over there genre that was coming more into the mainstream. And well, of course, you know so how much I like pedal steel guitar. Yeah, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you, you got, you've got dozens of them in your house. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. yeah, right. I mean, but really, that was a diff- the only difference. I mean, it was uh, you know they would put a pedal steel on where they used to have like a Yamaha DX7 synth or something, but the songs were the same. <laughs> arrangements were the same but that was big so yeah i had um i had the, those ones and that was a fun album i had um paul Keen on drums who had uh was playing with andrew Sefton and big whiskey uh garrett costigan he also the, he was with the giants at that time too, that's right he? the giants yes yes he played with uh, with those guys yeah mm, mm. with stewart and the giants and garrett costigan who went on to big things playing with paul kelly and played with Textone and charlie and yeah one of the top players, uh, Tim Milliken, was playing bass. I'd known Timmy oh, from yes, uh, I forgot that. the Runnels. Yeah. Because yeah. um, I actually, here's another side story. When uh, we toured, going back to uh, the uh, Colorbine album, when I was on tour, one of the acts we opened for were the Devonals, and I got to become good friends with everybody. Yeah. And uh, my old friend from Portland, Oregon, Dwayne Jarvis, who played with Lucinda Williams and John Prine and Dwight Yoakam and a lot of people. He was playing in Devondles at the time and he was getting ready to go back to the States and they were talking about a replacement. And Tim and I think Roger Mason and Bill Matt might have been, a couple of the guys were, were putting me forward to take the gig. And of course, yeah. uh, Charlie Owens got it, who really was a better fit for the band anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's where I met Tim. So yeah, so Tim played on my album as well. And uh, we, we, uh, I was just starting to do some things with it. I really didn't have a real plan for what to do. And then I get this call, um, Andrew Sefton and Big Whiskey, bands happening, they're going well, bass players leave. Do you want to come and play bass with us? And I mean, so how, I'll how do the guy they, who, who got in contact with you? I mean, who knew you? I think it was Paul, because both uh, Paul and yeah. Garrett were okay. playing with, with, with Andrew at the yeah. time, and that's yeah. where you got involved with them as well, in yeah. terms of, of the management side, yeah. you and you watch Trace. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think it was Paul who called up and said, you know, hey, do you want to come and play bass in this band? And mm. it was a lot of fun. We all got on great, and I thought it was, uh, it was a good thing. We were doing a lot of cover back then and just doing the circuit. And well, then, well, what uh, had happened, I think, yeah, well, I think what had happened then is that Virgin had dropped – the Slow Club. So Andrew, um, uh, this was the band uh, after the Slow Club. 
And so he, yeah, was trying to get a new deal together. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think you were gigging three nights a week, weren't you? Something like that. It was They were working a lot. So I thought, well, this looks like a good thing to get into. Yeah, yeah. And so therefore we get there because there's not another record for you from you for another seven years. Um, a solo no, record because you worked on Big Whiskey, yeah? Oh, Big Whiskey. And then, yeah, the, um, yeah when it came time to record the Big Whiskey album, um, as, as you and other people involved in the project knew, Andrew was a good writer, but he wasn't a very prolific writer. No. And I had a stack of songs. So we ended up taking uh, at least five or so of the songs off my Wood Nails album, and we re-recorded them with Big Whiskey with Andrew on Lee Vocal. Mm, mm, um, absolutely. For that one. And then you had Hillbilly and, Moon after that. So, I mean, there's a lot happening yeah. there for you over that period. That was, yeah. 94, 95 was very, very busy, yeah. I, I, it's just it's like the tap that opened, though. Someone had turned the faucets on and everything was flowing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't even know how it came up. I, I had become good friends with Paul Norton. Um, yeah. I've been a fan of his work for a long time. I started hanging out with Paul and his wife, Wendy Stapleton. Um <clears throat> Then I somehow, one night, we all got together at my place. It was Paul and Wendy and Pete Wells and Lucy DeSoto happened to come over. <clears throat> they hadn't known each other, but they, everyone, it was just one of those nights where everyone got on like a house on fire. Yeah. And next thing we knew, we've got this band planned. <laughs> <laughs> so we, um, uh, Pete came up with the name Hillbilly Moon. We actually had a, a he referenced it in one of the songs on that first album. We thought, well, it sounds as good as anything else. So, yeah. It was meant to be like an acoustic kind of traveling Wilbury sort of project where we still were doing our own outside things, but we had this little band thing. I mean, that got recorded on the 48 Channel Neve disc, didn't it? That's right. The yeah. beautiful old Neve out at um, yeah. um, Studio Central at right. Channel 10. Channel at, uh, 10, yeah, absolutely. Which, yeah, that was just a gorgeous, gorgeous. A beautiful sure. analog sound. I mean, so... So therefore, we've got that, and so you really ninety three, ninety four, ninety five, ninety six. You're going around that period. Um, so then we get to the ABC sessions. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, in ninety seven, just to fill in the gaps, mm. we recorded the second Hillbilly Moon album, but it never got released. Oh, Everyone was really? sort of fracturing oh, okay. about that point. Um, Rose Tatum had reformed at the behest of Guns N' Roses because yeah. they were they were idols of, of uh, Tats. So yeah. they'd reformed, and so Pete was gone. He was overseas. Uh, Wendy got the gig uh, doing the Dusty Springfield show. Yes, very popular. And Paul ended up becoming music director, so they were taking off. And uh, everyone just sort of, we never really stopped the band or broke up. We just kind of got busy and sidetracked. And yeah. so the second album, the only thing, we had one track released on an ABC compilation, one of Paul's songs. Otherwise, the rest of the album had never seen a proper release. So that was the 97 thing. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I um, I was doing a lot of production work at that point. That's why there was nothing much for me. I was behind the scenes. Uh, ABC were doing this new artist Thing, uh, like new up-and-coming country and folk artists. And oh, yeah. uh, I've produced probably close to a dozen um, of those working with a lot of them, and some of them went on to do some fairly big things. Well, what, that, and and at that time, the ABC were very prolific in this area, and ABC records were quite pr prolific. Yeah, it was a good solid time around then because you had uh, Meryl Cross then in charge of ABC and she was very artist-friendly and she could see the big picture. Well, I could and, give you uh, one one it. story. I mean, yeah, she was and um, and they were 
and especially in the country area and the classical area, just huge. I'll give you one story because you've given me enough of yours. And we were uh, we were asked to, I think it might have been the Lime Spiders or maybe the Celebrate Rifles, to go on some compilation that the ABC were doing, which we weren't in favour of. Uh, you know, I thought, ABC, compilation for alternative? I don't think so. And uh, this was really at the end of the CD era, okay? Mm-hmm. So you yeah. really, I was, there was no way you were selling me. No. So this guy rings me and says, how dare you, um, uh, you know, decline? And I said, well, we don't, we don't believe your numbers. You know, he had in there, I think they were going to do... <laughs> 15,000 CDs or something, or it might have been 40,000, I chuckle about it. And he said, do you know who I am? He said, I'm from the ABC Records. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't believe it. I, I thought to myself, who you were, ABC Records? Well, outside of country and classical, I don't ever want to hear from you again. <laughs> You know, um, and uh, I got abused. Yeah, got uh, I got a lot of abuse. I had to make a formal complaint. He was um, a little terror, that guy. Anyway, yeah. but they were very. So when I see the ABC sessions, yes, they were doing a lot, and especially around your genre of music, uh, Cletus. Yeah. Well, how that came together was I had been doing, as I mentioned, producing a lot of stuff. And the, the head of the project was this uh, wonderful guy named Rich Potas, who had his own show on ABC Radio. And he was kind of in charge of this whole uh, new artist sort of thing. And I was working with him. I, he was at, based out of Adelaide. So I was handling most of the Sydney stuff. Yeah. And kind of as a, as a thank you, he said, can you record a track for me for uh, that's exclusive for ABC? Mm. And uh, we'll get you some studio time up in Sydney. And uh, I said, sure. And of course, because I work really fast, uh, I went in and I recorded six tracks. (laughs) It's time allocated. Uh, I went in with, um, I had Kevin Bennett from uh, The Flood and Chasing the Train. Uh, I had Duck Bly, who at that point was drumming with Chasing the Train, uh, sorry, with The Flood. Uh, I had Michael Vidal on bass, who uh, played with, Everyone from Jimmy and the Boys to uh, the Whitlams, and I got to know him because he played with Pete Wells for many years. Oh, yeah. Um, so I had these top players in there, and we knocked out a handful of songs, and Richard said, gee, that's pretty good. Um, I can't get you any more time in Sydney. I can get you some in Adelaide, in, in Melbourne. So I went to Melbourne, and I brought in all the big whiskey guys. I had Andrew Sefton in there. I had pretty much the whole band. And uh, Chris Stockley uh, from the Dingoes yeah. and, and many other bands. Chris yeah. played on a few tracks. And so we basically did a whole album. And I thought, well, look, I've done this kind of for free as an ABC thing. So we called it the ABC Sessions. Well, you know, you know, you, did, did Andrew Sefton sing on any of the songs or just play guitar? Just backing vocal, yeah. Backing vocals. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned Chris Stockley worked on it. I... Um, I was uh, interviewing Chris Dockley the other day. He was saying to me, I, I was really trying to encourage him to put out a solo acoustic record and he said he, he's very, um, he finds that very difficult. He's a band kind of person. He is very um, introverted in just sitting there himself and playing. I said, that's crazy. You've written some of the most classic songs in Australian country rock history. And, um, you know, when I now that you mention that, I must uh, I must try and get you two together to um, to put some songs together or possibly you know uh, uh, write together. Anyway, I will talk about yeah. that after this interview. That's a great idea. Uh, I'm, 
I'm, I'm a big fan of Chris's. Like, uh, he is such an incredible player, so tasteful. Absolutely. Uh, he, could, he could play about anything. He's just really intuitive and uh, just one of the loveliest people you'd ever want to meet. Yeah. You know, and as you say, yeah, it's one of those <laughs> he things, has the right to great thoughts. Well, yeah, and uh, he's not very technically savvy, um, so you'd have to come down to Melbourne. So anyway, let's talk about that because that could just be sensational also. What a great combination. And as I said to Chris... You know, we haven't got many years left. Um, you know, me and Chris are in the danger zone. Anyway, um, we'll come back to that later. So then we move on to Footsteps. So that's a, co- a, a collection, a best of, right? So, yeah. So, so basically, again, around that time now, 90, 90, well, the um, AC sessions technically came out in 99, but when it came out, I'd already moved back to the States, and this time wow. I'd gone to Nashville. Yeah. And I went because I wanted to try to get an in in the songwriting world over there more than anything else. So I was going to be an artist as much as I just wanted to, to get into the, the writing field. And I had a lot of friends there. And uh, so I spent a couple of years there developing and working on all that. And then uh, I had, as I said, you know, basically I'd taken my albums, my independent albums I had done in Australia. We were using them and <laughs> repurposing them as demos in Nashville, mm. Mm. Uh, well-recorded demos. And, uh, so I, I did a compilation of all of these other tracks together on what we call Footsteps, yeah. uh, which uh, I like used to call my greatest non-hits album. Yeah. <laughs> none, none of them were ever big hits, yeah. funnily enough. But most successful song I've ever had, I don't sing. So um, there's probably something in that. Uh, so, so that just came out about 2010, and that was just like a, a bit of a stopgap to put something out. And so uh, the, yeah, well, then we, just, yeah, yeah, we get to Stones, right? So we've got an EP, and then we get to, you know, I mean, they, they just keep coming out Sedalia Blues, um, A Lurid Casino of Existence, uh, and now we've got the new tracks, um, which you've, you know, done with Laneway. And um, uh, for everybody, you know, hardworking people was the first one we put out. We have put out Cletus's back catalogue, and that is actually doing really well. I mean, um, it's it's just it's just working. And now you've got your new single out, "Trouble and Me," um, which let's see how that goes over the next four or five weeks. And I um, I tend to think because you've got that back catalogue, as people are discovering you now again, uh, is that they've got a, a a rich a rich collection of music to just sit there and listen to and see a real development of Cletus Carr from beginning to end and there's a and you can you can hear the development um and where you're going i mean what would you tag yourself genre wise as now with trouble and me and hard-working people yeah it's it's a tough one to to really identify i'm definitely um almost consciously leaning in a more blues direction on this album uh, part of it was because it's just sort of the shape of the way the songs i was writing came together uh but also i have found in my travels um in festivals, uh, very much so in this country, sort of in the USA, North America, not so much in Europe, but people do, they, they have what I call the genre police. Yeah. And if they don't feel your blues enough or folk enough or country enough or whatever, then they don't want to give you a look in. And for artists like me that straddle those borders, it makes it difficult. And I thought, well, what if I just really took all my bluesy songs and put them out. We can call it a blues album. Let's see if the blues Nazis like it or not. <laughs> yeah, well, look, you know, um, I mean, the territories where 
where you're working at the moment, where your music is getting reactions, obviously Australia, because you're here, is Brazil, is Italy, the United States and France. I mean, they're fantastic territories. Um, And I think uh, with what you've got coming out, because, you know, here at Laneway we do, we go we go by a, a release schedule of we want to see something every six weeks, every four, six. Uh, you know, we want in the the theory of the album, and I've spoken about this before, so listeners will probably be bored uh, shitless with it, is that, uh, you know, the, the album is dead. Yes, it becomes an album after ten songs just because you need to group it together, but it's about putting songs out. And for you, that's working really well now. So I'm going to be very interested to see where you're at in the next three to six months. And what we do know very clearly from our statistics and analytics is that uh, it does cross over into the live scene. So you 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 start yeah. to get shows, um, and that means that I would suggest to you that uh, Brazil, you know, and Italy and France, those territories, uh, the UK is in there too are going to be territories you'll be able to yeah. visit and get some gigs. Um, and that's It's really interesting because I, I, I have toured Europe um, quite a few times and I've never actually been able to get uh, to play Italy or France. So they're turning up as one of my stronger uh, 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 stronger reaction um, um, countries in terms of what's been coming out. They're very now, good territories really for Australian Indiacs, very good territories. So the Celebrate Rifles, yeah. Died Pretty, all that kind of thing. Uh, so, and I think you're probably right, you're moving away from country, becoming bluesy and... Uh, I think you've mentioned a bit of folk in there, uh, but mm. that blues. Well, the only uh, you know. yeah, the only reason I got tagged in the country field was because I basically was writing what I would call like storytelling singer songwriter type songs, and yeah. they would have an acoustic feel, and they would generally have organic instruments, and that tended to get them pushed into the country direction when it really wasn't country, but it wasn't alternative rock or anything either because it didn't have all the big loud electric guitars and edgy stuff that had a the warmth to it. And I think that's why it's always kind of going to the folk countryside. Uh, definitely wasn't uh, an intentional sort of a thing. I think that's just what people would perceive it to be. Well, I, I, um, but I've... it works It works, It works. works all under what they call the Americana umbrella now. Yeah, well, I, I think that um, from where you've been, because you can go and tour in the States, uh, and with the advent of the digital world and, um, you know, all the digital DSPs, retailers and whatever, is that if you were to go over there and you had all those albums, you'd take them with you. You didn't have a major distributor like EMI or Sony. So you take them in your old kit bag and you sell them at each show and that's all great, but it's so, it's so finite for that night. You know, yes, some people show it around and go, you should get one of these CDs. The problem then becomes, where do you get it? And so what I think now with the digital world and you doing, you know, going over to the States where you can do a lot of shows is that because your catalogue's down and you've got this new material, um, I think that, well, we know that that interwines because we, we can tell with artists that we've worked with that you start to get more live shows because they've got plenty to look at, Cletus. They, they can actually... Yeah, you'd be surprised. Yeah, I think it'll be. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back to Europe. I think it'll be a different, different run this time for definitely. Yeah, so uh, I think there's. Um, uh, we can't wait to you know get all the new music from you over the next two or three months, and uh, your videos are, are looking sensational too. So you know, and, th- and that medium is very important 
course, you're very good with social media. You've learnt that social media is your marketing and promo and that's how you stay connected with your core audience. I mean, there is no... Um, we are under no misapprehensions. I think we've spoken very clearly about our age brackets and that uh, we are not about to break Cletus Carr as a major, you know, Bob Dylan. Yeah, but what course, we are yeah. doing I'm, is... I'm not, I'm not going to get 20 million uh, no. views on TikTok. No, but, <laughs> but, okay. but, to get, but to get to your core audience at your age bracket and my age bracket and whatever is quite attainable with your style of music. There is no age barrier in the country blues folk. There is none. They don't care whether yeah. you're 20 or you're 70. If it's a good song, well, and, it's a good song. And, yeah, and the other thing that's really good about this whole genre, again, because I was really pleased. I was in Nashville when the first Americana Festival happened, the very first one. Mm. They talked about the meaning of the name and how they needed an umbrella name to sort of dispel with stigma attached to some of the genre names. But mm. one of the best things about this field that we're talking about is – the fan base are generally long-term loyal as opposed to younger music where they'll love you for an album or two and then they're on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, people here will, will do this. Um, I'm still laughing about, I saw this yesterday on uh, the, um, you and I were discussing the Grammys the other day and Daily Mail in the UK, which of course is, you know, the Murdoch rag sheet over there had a big thing, unbelievable shock as Beyonce and Adele get overlooked for the song of the year. Oh, by an give unknown me a blues singer. Yeah, give unknown me a blues singer. Yeah. Body yeah. <laughs> she was she was getting Grammy nominations before Beyonce and Adele yeah, were born. So exactly. anyway, but that that just shows you where the, where the youth market that they're aiming to is. And fortunately, people like me, artists like me, don't need to even uh, tread that that board at all. So we're. The people that like our style of music will buy it year after year, decade after decade. Absolutely. It, uh, it's a timeless style of music. And as I say, it, uh, the demographic um, uh, is just endless. It goes from beginning to end. So, uh, uh, we, we, you know, I think one of the things I've discussed with a lot of artists too in the past is this business of, oh, well, they look at your how many streams you've got. Let's use Spotify. Um, and, you know, you get these ones that have got 100 hundreds of thousands, but what, and then nobody has ever heard of the band and they you know, might put something else out and there's nothing. And that's because they're all bots or they're playlists, purchase playlists, which have got nobody behind them. So there's no viraling going on. So what, you know, what we need to look at as per artist is we look to get streams from genuine listeners who come back and then do it again and then do it again. Now, whether that be only 10,000 whether it gets to 20, that's how you do build your genuine viral audience, um, not by getting onto playlists, which we could do, you know, it's so easy to do, and you get 100,000 streams and then it just drops off to nothing because they're not real. Um, so that's what's happening with you at the moment. I think that's just sensational, but it comes back to the quality of the song. And that never changes. That has never changed from the beginning. Yeah, well, it always is. And I tell young kids this all the time. I say, look, you know, just because you've got tools, because you have a recording studio software in your laptop, because you can get on social media and you can get a bunch of noise going on there, at the end of the day, if your songs aren't any good, it's not going to happen for you. And there's nothing you can do to change that. Exactly. Well, it's been uh, lovely talking to you today, Cletus, on Laneway Talks. Um, I think it, for, for me personally, I've come out with this little uh, brainwave 
Chris Stockley and Cletus Carr. I'm going to pursue that. And I'd love to talk to Chris about that. Yeah, yeah. please give him my best. And yeah, I, I well. would come, I'd come to Melbourne and, and, yeah. and hang and do whatever I needed to do. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we're looking forward to all the new tracks. Of course, you're, uh, you're heavily booked for shows over the next month or two. And um, we'll uh, talk to you again hopefully in six to 12 months and do a retrospective here over what we talked about today because I'd like to see what's happening, okay? Yep, I think we're on uh, on track. I'm feeling good about this year. As I said, I'm starting to, you know, put some feelers out to get back overseas uh, toward the end of the year. Well, I think um, if the calibre of songs there. that you've delivered are what your your creative juices are bringing out, yeah. there's plenty more to come from you. These are just terrific songs. They are so listenable. They're accessible. They, um, uh, you know, they they cross over the genres. And uh, I, I, you know, you know who I have to credit for all that, and it's a shame because he's gone now. But I, without has second hesitation, I give um, so much credit to David Crosby. Because oh, um, okay. I was I was basically at that point, I thought, you know, as you said, yeah, you start to get to a certain age, you think, well, I'm not going to have a career anymore, I'll just yeah. keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. I don't know, why would I bother writing songs? No one cares, no one's buying CDs anymore. Yeah. <clears throat> Cross, at 70 years old, starts making albums. And over that decade, he made five of the most astonishingly brilliant albums with a whole bunch of good, talented young people, including his son, James and, and other people. And it's just amazing. And, I think uh, that's, a, that's a really good point that you make, that he's been able to do that there. And I think, too, you're saying, you know, at the end of CD sales and whatever, and you do have to move on. CD sales are dead. Vinyl sales uh, are a non, a non-item. I mean, everybody tells me yeah, you know, they're taking it, off. They're taking off from a base of nothing. Um, right. It seems to me the vinyl does really well when you've got an artist that does really yeah, well. Like if Jack, if Jack White releases an yeah. album on vinyl, it's going to sell a million. But, yeah, yeah. you know, the average person's not going to get that sale because the, the cost of vinyl is so astronomically higher than what it was back in our day. Hey, well, you know, and, and Cletus, you, you've got to think, I, I think you started this, this conversation off, this interview, talking about, was it where you're putting all your um, things onto uh, reel-to-reel? Was that you? Yeah. Yeah. You were putting it out because you got three hours worth of listening as opposed to I've got to turn over every 15 minutes and turn the vinyl over. Now, think about CDs. Firstly, where are you going to buy a CD player? Then you've got to go in, you put it, you've got to look for it on the rack, you've got to go and then put it on, play it, whatever. Um, well, well in- try, buying, try buying a new laptop or a new car that has a CD player in it. It's non-existent. No, it's non-existent. So you've... Uh, as artists, we have to move on and we have to accept the new world is a digital world. And that's what you're doing and I think you're starting to see the results from it. I, it gets yeah, very yeah. difficult for me when people say, but don't you do CDs? Well, they're unenvironmental anyway. They never break down for a thousand years um, uh, and they're dead. So let's move on. This is where it's at. Um, we are about to uh, release a new platform soon. Um, we can't, I can't mention the name yet, but it will, you know, be selling high-definition downloads. You can get those in various places, but we're doing it at Laneway. And so, yeah. therefore, it's all, always, all there for you. Yeah. I always felt that what Neil Young tried to do some years back with that mm. Pono thing mm. was definitely in the right direction. It was just too far ahead of the curve. No, absolutely it was, yeah. I thought just, the idea was great. I yeah. thought, yeah, high-definition downloads that people can, re- like like audio files can really enjoy. And I, I thought, yeah, he's right on it, but 
when when I talk to artists now, Cletus, I say, don't ever talk to me about forty four sixteen. It's forty eight twenty four, and so I need forty. I need twenty four bit masters. We don't even talk sixteen bit masters anymore. So. Um, Yes, the world is moving into high def and we're going to be there for it and I think the people like yourself uh, are going to benefit from that because your kind of music is appreciated in high definition. Anyway. Um, yeah, well, it's not electronic. Electronic music, um, which a lot of it I enjoy, but you could you could play it on almost any medium and it sounds the same. Well, we think a solid state disc. Anyway, that's a discussion for yeah. another uh, another day. Yeah. It's been great chatting to you and uh, we'll talk to you in the not-too-distant future and all the best with your endeavours. Thank you so much. The future's so bright, I'm wearing two pairs of chairs. Ah, the sneakers are back. See you later. And there it is, another Laneway Talks. If you enjoyed that, there's more. Just search Laneway Talks for more great conversations. G'day, folks. Mark Allen here and... The Ox, David Schwartz. Uh, and we've started a brand new podcast called... A Couple of Blokes, A Couple of Beers, and we're just chewing the fat. Couple of Blokes, Couple of Beers with Ox and Marco. I'm thinking about whitening my teeth just so when I smile... There's a new episode every Wednesday. Have you got a weight issue? Of course I do. <laughs> it's a stupid loaded question. A Couple of Blokes, Couple of Beers with David Schwartz and Mark Allen. I'm eating the kids' Maltese. You're eating their of... Christmas present. I am a piece of garbage. <laughs> Listen wherever you get your podcasts.